This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High-quality information. Because high-quality information informs much better decision-making. Dittman Research has been providing high-quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com Okay, back here with uh, my buddy Brad Keithley. How you doing, Brad? I'm doing great, Jeff. Good to be with you. This is the uh, long sought after Brad Keithley podcast, or as some call you Bradford when they say my really good friend Bradford, and you say, "Well, they aren't my maybe aren't my good friend if they call." <laughs> I, think, I think Liesl used to do that. I'm not sure why she did that, but I'd, she did. She'd always call you Bradford. She did, yeah. Um, so a lot to talk about. I've wanted to get you on the podcast for a while. Um, I first met you about ten years ago. And I'd come across you, I think, at one of these uh, RDC or, I don't know, one of these Commonwealth North things, and you did a presentation on uh, on the budget. Right. And I had just started to maybe get, in, get involved in politics or thought about running for office because I was be- becoming more aware of, of um, back then it was HB 110 with the oil taxes, and then it was the budget obviously was starting to, um, it was still big, but, but you could kind of see going forward it wasn't going to be you know, as good as it was forever. Right. So we actually did a, you did a presentation for for me and some friends at your, your office. Right. And I remember thinking, man, this is, cause back then you were, you basically had said everything that had, had happened up until today. If we don't do the spending, if we don't fix this problem, we're going to spend all the savings and we're going to be at a real crossroads. Right. Right. And you and other people were warning about it, but I guess let's first talk about how you got into that because you originally came up here for, you were a lawyer. Right. And the oil and gas, right? Right. I came up in the, started coming up in the early 1990s for a project for BP, actually, um, and then uh, lived up here for a couple of years in the mid 90s, uh, moved back out south for, uh, down south for another project, and then uh, came back up, continued coming back up in the early 2000, 2000s. I was here three out of four weeks. I sort of went home to check and make sure the house hadn't burnt down, and mm-hmm. then finally moved up here uh, permanently in 2008. So how'd you get into the oil and gas part of the legal Is right away when you graduated law school or did you yeah, get, get in, there? In my entire 35 year career, I handled one non oil and gas matter and that was a coal matter uh, right out of, uh, well, I started, I started in the Pentagon as a lawyer in the Pentagon for two years. Uh, Cause you were in the military for a while, right? right it was in the air force. Uh, and I served in the Pentagon. I was in the general counsel's office, air force general counsel's office for two years. And from there, I went to a law firm in Tulsa. I had gone to undergraduate school in Tulsa, really liked the town. Went back to Tulsa and uh, started with a law firm there. And the late 19, or mid-1960s, 1970s, early or late 1970s, um, was all about uh, gas shortages. And in 1978, Congress was kind enough to pass uh, a, a law called the uh, Natural Gas Policy Act that just completely changed how natural gas was regulated. So this is separate from the, from the oil embargo with the fuel, like gasoline? Is that separate or is it related? It, it, it is sort of related uh, because gas, uh, oil had become scarce in the United States because of regulation. Gas became scarce for the same reason. We had price regulation on natural gas in the United States. Uh, and as a result, there wasn't a lot of drilling. Um, the prices were kept down below the, below the, 
the incentive necessary to drill. So there wasn't a lot of drilling. So we had gas shortages in the middle 1970s. Um, and frankly, that's, that's the first time I touched Alaska because I got involved a little bit with uh, the Alaska natural gas transportation uh, issues at that time. Um, and then in the late 19, in 1978, Congress passed the, uh, uh, the Natural Gas Policy Act, which completely changed regulation. And it meant a lawyer who had one year out of law school was, was working off the same baseline as a lawyer who had 30 years experience in the industry. Because everything changed. Right. And I jumped in it with both feet and uh, stayed in the oil and gas industry uh, for 35 years while I practiced law. I think later we'll talk about the gas line, but you mentioned that um, briefly with Alaska in the 70s. I mean, and this even goes before the 70s. I mean, the, the idea of the gas line has been talked about forever, right? Well, it goes back to, six, to the 60s with the discovery of Prudhoe and the realization that Prudhoe had both uh, oil and uh, natural gas in it. So, you know, oil, they built taps to get to get the gas out. And then the question was, how do you monetize the gas? And the issue, in, and because there was a shortage in the states in the mid-1970s, uh, there was a lot of effort to try to bring uh, natural gas down from Alaska. There were three major proposals. Uh, one was a pipeline uh, uh, that ultimately sort of looked like the pipeline that we've talked about in, in modern day. The second was what's called the over-the-top route uh, to build a, a, a pipeline out of Prudhoe over the top into Canada and come down uh, jointly with, uh, with a Canadian gas line. And the third was an LNG project uh, from the 1970s that was going to bring the gas down to Valdez and then LNG it out uh, down to Oregon, I believe, was, the, was where the terminal was going to be. Um, and, and ultimately, Congress passed a law, the 1976 Alaska Natural Gas Transportation Act, I think it was, uh, that required the president to make a determination of which route to go. Um, and so that was Carter. Uh huh. And <coughs> Carter chose the um, the the pipeline route um, uh, down through the uh, down through Alaska and then uh, and then down through Canada and uh, into the lower forty eight. And uh, there were pre builds. There were Canadian pre builds off that uh, pre build lines that were built from where the gas was going to come in that was used to transport Canadian gas. Um, and and so it was just a, there was a there was a big regulatory scheme around it. One of the companies involved in that was a company called Northwest Energy out of Salt Lake City that was acquired by a, a company um, in the late 1970s, acquired by a company called the Williams Companies. Uh, the Williams Companies was a client of mine. And so I got involved in evaluating uh, Northwest's participation uh, in, uh, in, the, in the Alaska route. Well, why, uh, why is it that taps got built but the gas line didn't get built? Because oil was was easier to build, uh, uh, the the it was easier to move. Uh, you had to worry about you, you couldn't oil. You could bring out on ships. You didn't have to have uh, any special kit to liquefy the 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 oil or anything like that. You could just build a pipeline down, put it on ships, and bring it down into the into the lower forty eight. Uh, gas you needed uh, additional equipment, special equipment. Uh, either a longer pipeline to go through Canada or a pipeline that went over the top or LNG facilities to move the gas by LNG. And so there was, it was more expensive. There was going to, there was more investment required. Plus gas was more heavily regulated uh-huh. than oil was. And so there was a regulatory burden that, that sort of sat on top of all that project. So they decided to go ahead with the, with the oil because America needed oil. We had, you know, we had the, the, the 1973 oil embargo. I was going to ask, is, 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 the, is the reason the TAPS got approved, um, a lot of people have said this, is a, a result of the embargo. We need, we need oil. We need more local um, domestic 
uh, per distribution. Right. And even then, it was a 50-50 tie. The Senate Spiro Agnew right. cast the deciding vote to uh, to uh, pass the TAPA, the uh, TAPS Authorization Act. I've told people that before. Even back in the 70s, it was close, yeah. 50-50. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, I was meant to do the podcast with him, and the COVID happened last year. But I was supposed to fly down to California and do a podcast with Mike Gravel. <laughs> and he was really a big supporter of the of the pipeline. Well, everybody in Alaska was. Yeah. Um, and he's kind of one of these forgotten... Some people kind of know the name, but, you know, Ted Stevens or Frank Murkowski, those are the names you kind of remember. Um, well, Gravel got defeated, so he, he sort of got lost but in he was the, a two, in the he was a, of history. He was a two-term, you know, and he did the he was big in the Pentagon. He was, I think he read the Pentagon Papers into the record right? Um, right. At, at um, against advice of people saying don't do that. Right, right. But he's kind of fascinating because he beat Greening in, I think, 68 in the primary, Ernest Greening, and he did this video, like this kind of, you, you wear this? No. He made like a video, like a, like a biopic, kind of this uh, heroic hero come to Alaska. He was a ta- taxi driver, wanted to run for, you know, run for office. And it was this very kind of hero version of himself. There was like a 30-minute documentary. And they showed it all over Alaska, like the whole state. It went to the <laughs> villages, it went to the cities, and he ended up, he was down before that by all accounts. And everybody saw this very good looking, kind of looked like Clark Gable and, and he won, and then he, you know, was in there for two terms. And then it's kind of ironic that um, Clark Greening, Ernest Greening's grandson, uh, I think grandson or grandson, beat him in the primary in 1980. And they were really trying, a lot of the Republicans wanted him defeated because he'd be easier, Greening would be easier to beat from Murkowski than, than Gravel. So it's kind of an interesting, interesting history there. So Gravel had been in the legislature, hadn't he, before he... He was speaker. Oh, is that right? He, he was, um, there's a picture of him in Juneau. There's all the speakers in the in the hallway by the Senate um, or the, the House chamber, and I'll, I have a picture of it. I'll show you. He was he was like great looking. I mean, he looked like a movie star. He moved here, I think, in the fifty. He was in business, and he was a taxi driver in New York, and he wanted to like go to a place where he could kind of do. I mean, he admits it, like do politics, and he moved here, and he was elected in um, sixty. I think he was like the second speaker, second or third speaker. Oh, really? Wow. Oh, yeah. No, there's a picture of him up there, and and uh, he's he was kind of. I've talked to a lot of people who knew him and worked with him, and he was kind of a character, by all accounts. He was. He still is a character. I mean, his, he, his, he ran for president, he ran, two thousand, and then he recently ran again. With right. he had some nineteen-year-old or eighteen-year-old running his campaign with these like memes of lasers and right. crazy, right. kind of crazy stuff. Right. He uh, he he has stayed a character throughout. Now, I I, I guess I picked him up when uh, he did have a role in. Uh, a, uh, he was in the Senate in in during the the debates about Tapa about the. TAPS Authorization Act, uh, and I sort of picked up, uh, picked him up then. I didn't know much of the history before then. So, so the the gas line was there any ever? I've heard people say, um, and people say a lot of things, but people that are kind of smart say that Murkowski as governor that was the closest we ever got. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I is think that that's, true. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, we he had an agreement with the producers. Um, it was a fair agreement. It was an agreement that um, uh, I think, and and the 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 lower forty eight was still in shortage. Was still in demand. That's at the time that we were importing LNG into the U.S. And we were talking about importing, building more import facilities, LNG facilities into the U.S. And so the demand would have been there. The agreement was with Canada was was solid. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think it could have. Uh, I, th- I think that could have gone. Uh, but Frank got defeated. Sarah came in. There was, you know, all sorts of uh, 
a cry about uh, about the unfairness of the deal, and it all got undone. What do you think? I've never really asked you, but the the Bill Walker. I mean, the China with Trump. I mean, to me, I was as kind of an observer. I said oh, that looks that looks pretty serious. It didn't pan out, but the Cinepec thing. I mean, that that seemed to be a maybe it was kind of a show. But you know, remember Trump and and G was were there, and and, and Walker, and they had the whole big signing ceremony. Yeah, what happened is the market moved away. I mean, it, that's the history of Alaska. We take so long to come come to some sort of agreement on the gas line that the market moves away from us. Uh, and the and and the expansion of or the creation of other LNG uh, facilities in Australia and Gutter and and elsewhere uh, really brought a lot of LNG to the market and made our admittedly more expensive LNG sort of the marginal marginal source of supply. Um, and if 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 Walker had gone through and been able to strike an agreement with China to become an investor, um, uh, that might have overcome uh, the market uh, dynamics. Uh, once having invested, China would have followed through on it, uh, and uh, even though there might have been cheaper sources of supply elsewhere, if they had sunk cost in, they would have followed through. Maybe not after the COVID, though. That would have, things yeah, are pretty and rough now with and the COVID. At, you know, and after and things with Trump, uh, between Trump and China, with the with the tariff war, mm-hmm. uh, really got out of hand, sir. Uh, really threw things off track. So I think that would have, even without COVID, uh, I think the whole tariff uh, uh, situation between the U.S. and China uh, would have thrown it off track. So as somebody who I'd you know consider an expert on the matter, what what do you put the odds on of a gas line ever being built in, in our lifetime? <laughs> uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about it, but I don't think the odds are any anything higher than twenty five percent. So pretty low. Yeah. Okay. Um. Speaking of kind of the you know national, you mentioned the Congress. Um, now we have this decision last week with Willow, which kind of was good. I think that's mm-hmm. a good decision, the Conoco project. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they came out and they they basically end the end of the Anwar leases, mm-hmm. which to, to me is kind of interesting because no, nobody really, none of the companies bid on Anwar, right? Right. And I talk to a lot of oil people that are they, they tell us like off the record they go, look, you know, um, Anwar is not going to probably happen. They don't really care. They don't seem to care that much. But then the the politicians get really activated about it. So what's your kind of take on, on why they went ahead with Willow, when I think a lot of folks were worried about that, but then why they backed off or ended the leases with um, Anwar? Oh, Willow's a project that is that is fairly far down the road. I mean, Conoco has uh, uh, leased the area, defined, done the exploration, defined the area, uh, is ready for development drilling, has gone through all of the uh, uh, NEPA requirements to... Identif- What's NEPA? That's the National uh, Environmental Protection Act. Okay. Uh, the environmental stuff has gone through all the environmental permits to uh, necessary to uh, do development to get the roads that are need to be built to get the pipeline that needs to be built to take the oil out of there. It's fairly far down the road, and it would have been a real uh, blow, I think, uh, to Alaska, and I think it would have been a real bad sign by the administration to stop a project that that's that is that far down the road uh sort of say well you know all this investment you've put in all this effort you put in and all this time you've put in all these permits you've gotten uh we're just going to wipe all that out but i mean there, there was some concern about some people were concerned they might stop it absolutely absolutely um, i mean it, the 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 left wing of the democrat party would want to stop that yes the environmentalists would want to stop that how much uh once this gets online what are we, what are the estimates for um amount amount of oil per per you know how many barrels per day? I've seen up to uh, up to one hundred and twenty five thousand barrels a day. So now we're at about half a million. So this is a pretty big twenty percent, yeah, twenty percent uh, increase. So yeah. I think it's still five or six. 
my understanding is still five or six years off. Is that about right? Or that's about right. Uh, and keep in mind that that hundred twenty-five thousand isn't increment isn't on top of the five hundred thousand. We're going to have decline in the five hundred thousand. I mean, Prudos continues to decline. Caparic uh, is continuing to decline. Alpines in decline. So, so a part of that hundred twenty-five thousand is just going to be offsetting the the decline we're coming having out of the existing it's, fields. It's quite wild to think in the eighties it was two million a day. It was. Yeah. Now we're down to about, about half a million. And I, and I remember being here in 1999 when uh, the president, then president of ARCO, Alaska, said, no decline after 99. I've heard that before. Yeah, I've heard that. That's <laughs> it didn't quite work out. But uh, well, even Parnell was a million barrels, right? That was the whole million barrels a day. Yeah, but but that was counting that was counting the offshore stuff. That was counting you know Anwar opening up. That was counting a lot of stuff. That wasn't from the existing footprint on the North Slope that we we're going to get a million barrels a day. What about this uh, oil search? I mean, they, they had some stuff that uh, or Repsol had discovered, right, years ago? Well, Armstrong. Uh, Armstrong, I guess, too, yeah. yeah. Uh, Armstrong needs to get the credit for that because they're the ones who persevered uh, and did the geology and the workup on it. Um, got to get that Bill Armstrong podcast. If you, if you can set that up, you let me know, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Haven't got him yet. Uh, so the Pika Project, you're talking about the Pika Project. Right, the, yep. And um, and that's a that's a great project, a, ga- a great prospect. Um, they're talking about a lot of oil. They're talking about you know several additional finds inside or or related to uh, the Pika Prospect. The thing I worry about is getting financing for it. I mean, you're, you've got you've got Repsol, who is a European major and who's moving much more to renewables. Is mm-hmm. sort of in that trend of moving toward renewables. And they had that problem with um, is it wipe. YPF or the South America Argentina, deal? Yeah, the Argentine. With, um, what was the company they bought? Um, YPF. Yeah, but there was another one. Some talismans. Didn't something happen where the they bought it, but then there was this issue with the, the they lost money, or there was a big problem with <laughs> nationalization. Or Repsol's always having trouble. Um, but but I don't think I don't think Repsol's going to step up. I mean, Repsol could have would have had the option essentially to buy Armstrong out and take the field entirely if it wanted. Repsol's to. still is it forty nine or something? It's in the 40s. They were bought down. Oil Search had an option to buy them down further, and I think they've bought them down further. But but Repsol is not going to stand up and do financing for it. Oil Search can't finance it from its own. How much is it? Uh, well, it's going to be in the billions. I mean, several billions uh, to to develop it, to fully develop it. So the the question is going to be financing. Are they going to be able to finance? And it's not just. I know in Alaska we like to blame the big banks for redlining Alaska. That's not it. I mean, you you've got. You've got financial institutions and financial investors now that are looking at uh, several predictions and several pressures of declining oil demand in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and you look at OPEC, who's stepping up oil development because they're going to monetize before we, you know, before we hit the end of the oil age. So you've got, you've got increasing supply coming out of OPEC. You've got declining demand, looking at declining demand. You've got lower 48 shale. Uh, that can sort of go up and down to fill in fill in gaps. So there's going to be, I mean, the industry is fairly come fairly uh, 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 has accepted that we're going to have what are called stranded assets. You know, oil fields that we find that we're just never going to develop. Sort of like coal. I mean, we've got a yeah. huge amount of coal in the world, but it's never going to be developed. And so we're going to have oil fields that are the same oil fields that have been found and never developed. Did you see? And I didn't read the full article, but recently there was some. Find on near the road and the, the Dalton Highway or something. Have you, have you heard about that? Pantheon Resources. It's the old, um, um, oh, what was their name? Um, not Brooks Range. It was uh, Great Bear. It was the old Great Bear. Oh, oh Ed Duncan, right? Right. The old I, I remember them. They were they loved those oil tax credits, right. didn't it was, they? <laughs> it, was the old, it was the old Great Bear prospect. And Great Bear, 
initially was a shale company. They thought they'd found a lot of shale. Right, I remember that. Uh, on the slope. But ultimately, they backed off the shale and found that there were conventional supplies, conventional oil supplies up there. Great Bear ultimately was bought out by Pantheon or rolled into Pantheon. Uh, and Pantheon really made, uh, recently made the announcement that they think they've got uh, a billion barrels of recoverable oil. To give you some perspective on that, Willow's only about 600 million uh, barrels. Oh, and this is near oil. the this is near infrastructure, existing infrastructure. Well, it's near it's near one piece of inf- infrastructure, which is a road and a pipeline. But it doesn't have any wells. It doesn't have any, you know, water yet developed. It doesn't have. Uh, any any build out of the additional mm. infrastructure you need to be able to do development. Is it state land? Uh, yes, that would be mostly state land. But so it's going to it's going to need federal permits. It's going to need clean so clean air and clean water permits. So best case scenario, something even if this was like totally good to go, this is years and year ten years maybe or something. Yeah, and Jeff, this is I mean this is really where you stretch the bounds of financial financeability. I mean these guys, according to the most recent article, these guys don't even have fan, financing to do next year's drilling program to you know to sort of define these prospects so mm-hmm. oh boy so it's the it's we're hitting i mean it's sort of ironic that alaska's suddenly you know sort of coming on finding the all good rocks all these rocks that that we that we may be able to develop in 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 additional areas uh uh in the north slope and and near the north slope in the case of the pantheon prospect but now it looks like we're hitting the the end of the oil age um this and is a stranded Stuff you're talking about earlier. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So the, the question is, are you going to find institutions that are willing to, to, to put the money behind uh, these developments? And there's, you know, there, there's, there's oil in several places in the world, big oil deposits in several places in the world uh, that are just not going to get funded because they're, they're you know, you, you, you compare a declining demand curve and an increasing supply curve out of OPEC and the potential for, you know, the sort of the, the unlimited potential of, of uh, shale to sort of fill in that crack. Um, and you, you say to yourself, you know, is, is it worth putting money in these prospects? Am I going to get my money back? Do, do you think the, the banks, you know, Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo and these decisions, they've come out and said, we're not going to finance it. Do you think that's a performative thing? Just because people are very, uh, there's a new green push, or is it actually, hey, we're not, we're not going to do this because we think, you know, we think it doesn't make financial sense. I think it's a combination of the two. I think there's a fundamental financial issue. Um, and, and if, if you're, if you're not going to finance it anyway, why don't you, why don't you just take credit for it um, as you're, as you're, as you're doing that? I think, you know, I, I, if, if we, if we didn't have the environmental piece to it, some of these projects might be more attractive uh, to, uh, to investors, but because of the environmental overlay, uh, that just adds another burden in getting uh, uh, the permits necessary to develop these things. Uh, it lengthens out the time to develop them, uh, creates additional reputational issues for the institutions that are involved in in developing them, and uh, and I think there's just a huge burden in getting financing for these prospects. What's your take on this new uh, re- recent uh, disaffected investor situation with Exxon? I've read a little bit about that. I, I haven't gone... Um, in depth on it, but it seems like uh, that that's they got a new board, another board seat, right? Well, they got three board seats. I mean, the uh, engine one, engine number one, got three board seats, which is a pretty big deal. Um, How many board seats are there? Twelve, maybe at Exxon. Oh boy, so they're 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 getting closed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a fairly it's a hugely significant thing, um, and it's sort of a, it's a combination of things. It is it is you've got a, a, a portion of, of Exxon's shareholder base 
that is concerned about the environmental side. You've got a portion of Exxon's uh, 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 base, uh, shareholder base, that is dissatisfied with Exxon's financial performance. Um, and those two sort of came together in a way that um, uh, led to sort of a shareholder revolt uh, that, that resulted in the election of those uh, of those three board seats. And what are these folks? What are, what are they? What do they want? What are their what are their demands? Or, or what's their intention? If you if you read uh, read their stuff closely, um, I think I think you begin to see they sort of want it to be more like Total or more like, not as far as BP, but, but more like Shell. They want Exxon to realize that the oil age may be ending. They don't, wanna, they don't want Exxon investing in a bunch of stranded assets, uh, assets that are going to be stranded, and they want Exxon to start to make the move from, from what they see as a declining oil business to uh, uh, other uh, energy businesses. So talking about... On that topic about, you know, in the future of, of declining oil, what do you think the future of Alaska is? And, and are we prepared? It seems like we don't do a lot to think about tomorrow. We think about the next election maybe, and you know, let alone five or 10 or 20 years down the road. Yeah. We got, we got a lot of issues that are hitting us in the face. So it's hard to think, think much more than, you know, what's right in front of your face because the issues are so, are so huge right in front of your face. But I, we, Alaska needs to be, preparing, uh, I think, for uh, the play out of the oil age. Uh, you know, not immediately, not tomorrow, not in the next five years. Uh, and, you know, and I think Willow will go, although we need to, we need to keep in mind that Willow has not, has not gotten FID yet, has not got final investment decisions. So Conoco hasn't committed to make the financing necessary to complete that, that project yet. They've talked about doing that at the end of this year. Um, so What's the, is that billions as well? Uh, billions, plural. Uh, right, billions, yeah, yeah. Um, a lot. Uh, and so, uh, I think we need to. I need. I think we 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 need to recognize the fact that we're that we're not always going to have oil, even you know, contributing the amount it's contributing now. The the depending upon how you do the calculation, the the, the fraction of the budget that it's that it's uh, contributing now. I think we need to. Realize well, it's, it's much less now than what it was five. 10 years ago before yes. the SB 26. I mean, it was a long, long, for a long time, 90% of the, the revenues. Right. Uh, and now with the SB 26, I think we're, we're at about 25%, maybe 20, somewhere around. Cause I mean, the three, well, billi- the three billion that comes out of the permanent fund is a substantial amount. This is where we get into the debate. I, I, I only count half of what we're coming, uh, what's coming out of the permanent fund is going to the, to the UGF, the other half going to the PFD. So it's, uh, it is, it is about 50% of, the the half that Governor Hammond intended for uh, uh, government um, and 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 oil oil is about half of that mm-hmm. half of that amount now and then the rest of it's deficit we're deficit financing it somehow and like like you said years ago ten years ago this is when I really got interested in this stuff and I mean you weren't the only one talking about this but you were one of the few people because at the time especially in 2012 when there was the election that kind of defined the Senate majority. Uh, the price of oil uh, was still high, yep. but, but the budget was also very high, and it wasn't going down yet. It started to go down right about maybe the next year, but at the peak of it, the, the budget, the operating budget was like six billion dollars plus a two billion dollar operate or capital budget. Yeah. So at the top, at the top, we were right at uh, eight billion dollars, if I remember right, and that was like twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen. It didn't peak out fiscal year thirteen. So yeah. But, uh, 
I was, I was going to say, now we're to the point where, where you kind of warned. A lot of people were looking at, now the money's gone. Yeah, uh, it, it wasn't. I mean, all I did was, the, 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 I came to this realization reading a report that Scott Goldsmith did in 2009, 20, 2009 or 2010. Uh, in connection with the Shell project, the Shell OCS project, there was a lot of work done around the economics of why Shell was important and why Shell was important to Alaska and why we ought to go forward with the Shell project. It was part, I think it was part of their uh, environmental impact statement, uh, the economic portion of the environmental impact statement. And Scott had, Scott worked on this with, with others. And, and there's a portion of it that, that lays out why Shell's and why the project's important. And it says without Shell, um, and and other oil discoveries that would be related, anticipated to be related to Shell, we'd be out of money by 2024, and the state would be out of money by 2024. We'd be in we'd be in exactly the situation we're in. And I read that and I went, wait, this doesn't make. I mean, you know, this is 2009, 2010, oil uh, in the lower 48s going back gangbusters, um, uh, gas is going back gangbusters. We're still in the middle of trying to do our gas project up here. Um, it, it just didn't make sense to me. So I spent a lot of time studying what Scott was talking about, a lot of time talking to Scott, read everything Scott had ever written uh, on the subject, continued to, continue to talk and, and work on him, uh, work with him uh, uh, as long as he uh, stayed at it. Um, and so it wasn't me. I mean, it was just, it was just I, was, I was mimicking then uh, what Scott had laid out and what, and what, you know, once you delved into it, became very clear that was where we were headed. Yeah, no, I remember Scott and, and Gunner and those ICER, ICER, yeah, I remember they were doing stuff too, you're right, with the reports. But I guess I just, you were out there too as well, and, and um, I just remember very very vividly that presentation where it's like, you know, the if we don't fix the problem, yep. then we're going to have, we're, we're already, we're a little ahead of 2024, because now it's 2021, and there's about a billion dollars left in the, it's funny, I, I don't know if you saw, I, I tweeted out from the landmine, I went back because yeah. now they're doing the 10 year. They're talking yeah. about this 50, 50 and everything's great. And the yeah. markets are going to go up and we're going to be great. Everything's fine. Yeah. 10 years ago yeah. today, the 10 year forecast said 24 billion in savings. We're at like a billion. It said the price of oil would be a hundred dollars a barrel. We'd have a $6 billion operating budget and you know, yeehaw. <laughs> and it's just, nobody knows the future. You know, that's the big thing. And nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. Well, and, and part of it, Jeff too, is, is everybody wants to predict, everybody wants to base their uh, their future on best case, right? Yes. I mean, it's like Governor Dunleavy's, you know, new spring uh, uh, forecast, new 10-year outlook. It's all, it, it, it assumes oil prices go up when the, when the futures market's telling us oil prices are going to go down over the next decade. It assumes, the, the Dunleavy budget assumes production jumps something like 30% yeah. uh, from, from current levels. Uh, when, you know, when Willow's going to help offset decline and bump us up a little bit, but that, that assumes that Pika's going to come on full bore and it's going to assume, assumes there's other fields that are come on, come on full bore. None of those assumptions, I think, are, you know, in, 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 the, in the corporate boardroom, I used to be in corporate boardrooms a lot, in the corporate boardroom, we'd call those a far-stretch budget. And, you know, everybody will chuckle a little bit when you put those when you put those forecasts on the table. And then the chairman would say, okay, well, tell us what the truth is now. Mm. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, yeah, every, so, you know, you go back to 2010, it was the same thing. Everybody, you know, saw unlimited pie in the sky. But 2010 is the very time frame that Scott's writing this stuff yes. for Shell that, that's saying, look, folks, you know, if you, if you run the, these actual numbers, these baseline numbers, these much more realistic numbers out, 
you know, we're headed into the into the ditch. Well, and even at the time when the state budget was balanced on $100 oil, I remember, I think it was you and some others that, that um, showed me this, is the oil companies, for their long-term forecasting, were using 60 or 70. Right. So they were well below the 100 right. when it was 100 because they said, look, we know probably, let's not, let's not predict the future of the top price and you know, in the last 30 years, right. forever. Right. I want to talk about the dividend because you've been a long time, um, is it fair to class, classify you as a full dividend guy or a, maybe a larger dividend guy? I think it's fair to, I think it's fair to class me as a 50-50 dividend guy. Um, and, and, you know, that, that can either be the current statute if you look at it one way or it can be POMV 50-50 if you look at it another way. But, but uh, a, a 50-50 split guy, I think that's, I think ha- that's how I classify myself. Which is kind of what Dunleavy is essentially uh, proposing, this yes. re- recent proposal. Right. Now, if that happens, and the administration's kind of saying, well, if we, if we move $3 billion over and we can cover the deficits for a few years and markets are going to go gangbusters and we're going to, by the way, we're going to take out more money for the, the other, you know, the full, the 50-50 PFD, which is I think $1.5 billion more, uh, is what the Senate approved. That's right. probably not going to shake out in the conference committee. But um, there has to be, and this is the one thing Dunleavy hasn't proposed or very few legislators are talking about, you're going to have to have some more revenues, right? I mean, substitute revenues, I, I, revenues. Yes. Some, some additional revenues, right? Whether uh, it's income tax or sales tax or the oil companies, I think are starting to get a little worried about this new plan right. proposal. Right. And, 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 you know, you use real, not the pie in the sky, not the far stretch budget numbers, but you use realistic budget numbers. And I think Alexi had some numbers that he presented to, House uh, Judiciary a couple of days ago. And for the listeners, Lexi Painter, he's the right. le- legislative finance director. Right. That uh, were that were much more realistic. Uh, you've got deficits, and and you know deficits as in a difference between spending uh, levels and revenue levels uh, after you know adjusting for POMV fifty fifty. You've got you've got deficits, and the question is how do we best hit? How do we best fill those deficits? That's the issue that, that, that I think we have to confront. And, you know, we've been using PFD cuts for the last five years to fill, along with the CBR draws, but we've been using PFD cuts for the last five years, essentially taxing the PFD by diverting it uh, to government. And ICER told us in 2016, and Scott had told us long before that, that using PFD cuts uh, is the worst way to do it. It has the largest adverse impact on uh, middle and lower income Alaska families and uh, has the largest adverse impact on the overall economy. So we need to confront how best to fill those deficits in a way that best serves Alaska families and the Alaska economy. What do you think about um, the governor's proposal to move $3 billion out of the earnings account to essentially weather the storm for a couple of years? You know, I think it's a horrible idea. Um, it, it is it is a tax on future Alaska generations. I mean, somebody's going to pay. I mean, at five percent, you lose one hundred and fifty million a year, right? And, yeah, and, and potential earnings. Uh, seventy five million out of the PFD and seventy five million out of the out of the general fund. Exactly, exactly right. And I think it's a horrible idea. You're taxing Alaskans, taxing future generations, in order to solve this generation's problems. I think this generation needs to solve solve its own problems. But I will say this: I noted that JKT uh, in Representative Christ uh, uh, Tompkins in a uh, an interview with, I think it was uh, Nat Hertz, uh, Alaska Public Media, said uh, at the, right at the end of the article, said, you know, if 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 we could finish, if we could come to finality, get everything resolved for that three billion dollars, it'd be worth it. So it's a horrible idea to do it, but if as part of getting a final resolution that helps fill that crack, 
um, you know, he, he was essentially saying he'd bite his tongue to do it. I think I'd bite my tongue. I mean, I, I think that makes sense. I, I heard him say that. But the, the question is, nobody's proposing any of the last step, the most controversial, um, maybe divisive step is the revenue step. Right. And nobody's really talking. I mean, a few people have mentioned some here and there taxes, but the governor's not. And, you know, we only have about a billion dollars in the savings. And I, I'm, I'm all, all for reducing spending. But, I mean, the rea- reality is I don't think you can cut the spending much more than maybe 300 or 400 million more dollars without having we, – we tried that a couple of years. And, that, and that's, and that's going to be a stretch to do that. I mean, after what we went through in 2019, it's going to be a stretch to try to do that. I mean, the budget now is about $4.5 the operating. It was six about eight years ago. So there's been about a billion and a half cut. And the frustration I get from a lot of folks is they listen to talk radio or some of these people on Facebook. They think the budgets, you know, could be cut by half. They just think it's very possible, but because they're misinformed or maybe they don't pay attention. But the reality is the legislature has cut it quite a bit and they've tried to cut it more. And it's kind of where it is. I mean, do you agree? What do you think it could be at? Oh, I think, I think, you know, we found out in 2019. I mean, I think the governor, the governor tried. He had a Republican legislature. He only needed 16 to, to hold with him, uh, and he did, couldn't get to the 16. I mean, it, if he'd had 16, I think he would have pressed through. But, but you know, you, he lost people here and there on, yeah, cut everything except for this. Cut everything except oh. for this. And by the time you add up all of everything except for this, um, he couldn't make that deep of cuts. And I, and I don't think that changes. I don't think any legislature um, – uh, even if you elected all Kevin McCabe's, I don't think any legislature is going to, is going to, you know, vote to uphold governor's vetoes uh, uh, at that level that he tried to do in 2019. And I don't think this governor or frankly, any other governor is ever going to try it again. Well, after and, what and, happened in 2019. And he backed off his, propo- yeah, exactly. his, his, his proposed what, budget in December. And, you know, it was basically the status quo budget. It was very few, it was the same as it was the year before. It wasn't anything drastic. Well, and, 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 Here's an interesting factoid that that sort of you know gives an indication of what's going on in his uh, in in the December ten year forecast uh, that that accompanied his budget budget submission, he projected four point four billion dollars maybe uh, in uh, in spending in the budget. Um, that's that's the the FY twenty two budget in the in the new spring ten year forecast that just came out. FY twenty two spending is six percent higher. Yeah. I saw that. Than, than what he had in the in just you know four or five months ago in the December. So he's not only is he not going, not only is he not making cuts, he's not even holding the line. <laughs> he's going what, the other. He's going the other way with what he said he was going to do in December. So yeah, I think I think the era of thinking that we're going to cut our way out of this. I mean, I wrote my first piece saying, uh, uh, you know, what are we going to do if we can't cut uh, in 2017? I, I think you could see back then that we weren't going to cut out of it, cut, cut our way out of it. But in 2019, he tried, um, and, you know, and that just blew up in his face. So and The other point that I think a lot of folks make that I agree with is they've, they've substantially cut down the capital budget from its peak of $2 billion, which I think arguably is, you know, we can all say is way too much. But now for the last several years, it's been 100 and some million. There's federal match there, but there, there's capital budgets are good. I mean, they, they employ people, they build things. They, they maintain things. I mean, I, I would argue that's probably some of the better spending. No, actually, some, actually some of the worse. If you look, really? at, the, oh, you, you <laughs> if you look at the ICER 2016 study, they look at the economic impact of the operating budget versus the capital budget. And a lot of the capital budget leaks out of state, doesn't, doesn't generate additional economic activity. 
those dollars don't generate additional active economic activity in the state. They leak out. Uh, a lot more of the operating budget stays stays in the state. So between the two, you want to cut the capital budget budget first. Now, and they've, and they've done that. And they've done that. Uh, but I but popping it back up. I don't. I'm I'm not a big fan of you know looking for ways to pop it back up. It keeps construction workers happy and keeps construction companies happy. Uh, but in terms of economic impact, it's not the uh, it's not the biggest bang for the buck. Well, a lot of a lot of a lot of folks bring up this deferred maintenance. We have all these things and um, infrastructure we don't really maintain, and that needs to be either maintained or improved or rebuilt. We do. There's a lot of that around the state. We do, or we need to, or we need to give up on or get rid of it. Yeah, exactly, and and stop you know you know, you know throwing nickels and dimes at it. And, you know, still having leaks that we have to fix the next year. Um, yeah, we we need to have a, a, a rationalization of of how much you know capital we've got out the state's got out there, uh, and and whether and how much we can afford to keep it up. But I I don't think just saying we're going to throw more money into the capital budget. It, the PFD has a far bigger bang for the buck hmm. in terms of dollars in the economy than the capital budget does. So the fundamental issue, we've talked about this a lot, you and I, and we see it for the last six years in the legislature. Some people think full PF, you know, the money needs to go to the people, the whole thing. While others, you know, this Bert Stedman, Von Imhoff side, and many in the House majority think, you know, pay whatever we can afford after all the, you know, expenses. And this, it's still a failed 10 to 10, the full PFD in the Senate. Um, the House had no PFD. Now they had the 50-50 version, which passed, but that still requires extra extra money. Um, and this has just been this, it's crazy, you know, on the national level, I think you can, I read this book, The Politics Industry. I, you read that? I, I need I need to put a plug in here for what Lyman said on the on the Senate floor during the debate on the budget, though. And, and, and I've posted this repeatedly, so I'm, maybe you've seen it, but if not, all you have to do is look at anything I post on any given day and you'll see it. Um, Lyman said... Uh, what what Natasha and Bert argue is that the you know uh, the PFD should be first to be cut and that's the that's the marginal dollars. Lyman said that's the exactly wrong. That that the PFD is the first that should be yeah. paid. And if we're going to have taxes or we're going to have you know new revenues, that's to pay for government. It's not to pay for the not to pay for the PFD. So I just I need to get that plug in there someplace. And I yeah, I was there when he said it, and, and I've seen I've seen you post about it, and um, it's it just it demonstrates the the schism in this in this issue is how people what people think there's very different views and i was going to say on the national level we have immigration we have guns we have um you know healthcare that never really seem to get solved in alaska it's it's the uh the pfd right and i was talking about this book how how some of these issues it's like nobody wants to solve them really maybe it's not by maybe it's not like a, a conspiracy but by not solving it you know you you have all kinds of talking points for the election and you know, it's, it's to solve, it, you have to work with other people and both people have to get credit, both sides. And it's just amazing that everybody acknowledges how, how crazy and, and, um, corrosive this issue is, but it just does not ever get anywhere close to being solved. Yeah. Well, it, it, but we've had the CBR. I mean, the reason it hasn't been solved, uh, I think is because we've always said, we're going to get to this issue. We're going to confront this issue at some point. Uh, and then we kick the can down the road. We've had the CBR to kick down the kick the can down the road, and maybe we're gonna maybe we're gonna just find new ways to kick the can down the road here again. But at at some point, we're gonna have to resolve this. Well, issue. we always get you know you had the '80s crash, and then you had Exxon Valdez with big spending, and then the Gulf War price of oil went up. You had the late two th- early 2000s, late '90s, the same kind of problems we were facing. 
you know, they had the fiscal policy caucus. They were talking about the same. They had the advisory vote on the dividend, and then the price of oil started going up. Now we have this federal money temporarily. But earlier you said you put a twenty five percent chance on the gas line being built, right? You give it. A, yeah, yeah. What do you? What do you? What? what, what and that's probably the high end. I mean, well, I, probably anybody listening to this. Uh, in the oil industry, is going to be chuckling at the twenty five percent. That's one of those optimistic forecasts. What, what do you call it? <laughs> far, the, uh, far stretch. Far stretch. What 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 do you what do you um, give the odds, the over under of them going into the earnings reserve to basically do what they did to the CBR, which is a much easier. It's a simple majority compared to the th- CBR, which is a three quarter vote. I've had legislators tell me uh, in confidence that that they're absolutely certain that's where it's going to go. That, I've said the same thing, yeah. Um, and I just and I and I respond to them saying that's a horrible dereliction of duty on your part. It's a horrible uh, abdication of responsibility. Uh, basically, what you're doing is you're taxing future generations to pay this generation's cost. I feel the same way. Feel the same way about that as I do about the federal budget. You know, and running deficits in the federal budget and running these running mm. these huge de- deficits and kicking the can down the road to future generations to deal with uh, deal with the, the interest costs and and the and the costs of of uh, the burdens of the debt that we're creating uh, at the federal level, it's the it's the same thing here, and we and we just we would just make it magnify it um, uh, going forward for future generations. I mean, we we were talking a little bit ago about you know oils in decline. Uh, uh, we're talking about stranded investments. We're not may, maybe not going to be able to get investment up here to Alaska to develop additional oil reserves. We're going to have to manage uh, you know becoming less and less of reliant on on oil well how, how do you how do you say that and then at the same time say well we're going to drain the earnings reserve and and you know tax future generations that way too we're, we're not leaving we're not leaving future generations with much um, if we do that oil's going down we can't save oil we just need to recognize that oil's going down uh, but we can save the earnings reserve we can save you know the investment base going forward to you know at least leave that to future generations. And, and I think just draining the, I think draining, draining the earnings reserve is just a horrible thing to do. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of worry that's where it's headed. I mean, I've read a lot of your stuff and what's maybe for the listeners, what's the Brad, if you were had the magic wand, what's the Brad Keithley? Is it, is it some income tax sales tax combination? Is yeah, it, it's, it's POMV 50, 50. Uh, and we close the deficit through what I call flat tax, which is a same, same percent take based on adjusted gross income, based on your federal adjusted gross income, not your federal income tax paid based upon your federal adjusted gross income so that all Alaska families uh, participate, contribute in paying for it. Uh, what percent are you? Uh, you'd be, well, every percent is $250 million because we've got about a $25 billion AGI uh, uh, base in the state. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that's plus or minus, you can add a little bit more for non-Alaska uh, people who receive income in the state, you would be able to reach that as well. That's probably another 7%. Um, so plus or minus $250 million for every percent. So if you got a billion-dollar budget, that's a 4% flat tax. Combined with maybe some more cuts that you could... Yeah, and, and here's the here's the deal. Here's one of the things about... <laughs> it's going to get get into and, and the... And the funny thing is I wanted to go... I wanted to real quick bring up because a lot of the folks talking about the dividend... Um, they're also very against tax, and they also mentioned Jay Hammond. Jay Hammond was adamantly in favor of the income tax. He was very upset they got rid of it. And it's funny to me how people, they, they tout Hammond for all their, on the dividend issue, but they, they don't talk about his stance on the income tax, which I think he felt it was a connection, people had a connection to the, the spending if they're paying into it. Next to Scott Goldsmith, and maybe equal with Scott Goldsmith, Jay Hammond really understood this state. 
I mean, he really understood the economics of the state. What you get with an income tax is you get, um, and, and, I, and, and the reason I want a flat tax is because I want everybody involved in this, but what you get with an income tax is people pushing back on spending and saying, no, don't tax me anymore uh, because I'd have to pay a tax to pay for it. And a flat tax spreads it through all income brackets, right? So the lowest 20% as well as the top 20% are pushing back on spending and saying, don't spend any more because you'd have to tax me more. Hammond understood that. I mean, that's, that's, that. his income tax was as much to act as a break on spending as it was to raise revenue. The problem we've got now is, is you know, you and I have talked about this before, but the problem we've got now is the top 20% are not engaged in pushing back on spending. Why is that? Because by using PFD cuts to fund government, you're pushing the burden, I mean, uh, as a percent of income basis, you're pushing the burden to middle and lower income Alaska families. It acts as a regressive tax. And the top 20% are going, well, yeah, so I don't get my PFD. So what? At least I don't have to pay an income tax. So at a 4%, at a 4% um, flat tax on the AGI, if you made 100000 you pay 4000 right? Right. And if the dividend's 2300 approximately, you'd... Use that plus yep. the extra because that's the marginal. So the thirteen, uh, seventeen hundred. So if you're making, um, I guess about sixty. Well, it's twenty three hundred per person. So if you got a two person family or a three person family, or a four person family, I mean you're making you're you're eighty percent. But, you, but you, you'd hope that money would go the kids. You'd hope they would use that ideally for a college or put it into an account or something. They wouldn't be using it for well husband and wife. So just add those two at least. That's forty. That's forty six hundred. Right. So at some so at some level you're going to offset it and then. Um, when you make more than a certain level, like you're talking about these top 20%, they're going to pay, they're going to pay more. The, the calculations that ISERV's done, the calculation that ITEP did, Institute of Taxation and Economic Policy, when they came in and did a study of Alaska in, uh, in 2017, and they've just done a new one. They did a, a new one last December. They're, all of those studies say that 80% of Alaskans would benefit, would be better off with a PFD and a flat tax than they than they than they are by closing that deficit through uh, PFD cuts. So a lot of folks on, on the on the other side, they'll say this is a big argument. Is and I want to see your um, response to this. Is why I don't want to tax. I don't want to get taxed to pay my neighbor a dividend. That's the that's kind of the talking point that's been coming up. Well, and that's where Lyman comes back. I mean, that's part of where Lyman comes back in. Lyman comes back in and says no. If you're getting taxed, it's to pay for government. It's not to pay for the PFD. The PFD has the first call. But this, the second thing about that, Jeff, is we're talking about how you close the deficit. And we should be talking about what's the best way from the standpoint of the Alaska economy and Alaska families to close that deficit. For 80% of Alaska families, it's better to close that deficit through a tax than it is through, through PFD cuts. For the Ala overall Alaska economy, it's better to close it through a tax than it is to close it through, uh, through PFD cuts. PFD cuts are the worst way to close that deficit. They have the largest adverse impact on the overall Alaska economy and the largest adverse impact on, uh, on Alaska families of all of, the, all of the revenue options. So when somebody says that, when somebody says, oh, I don't want you know, to pay a tax to it, what they're, they're, they're likely in the top 20%. And what they're really saying is, I want somebody else to pay this burden, to pay the burden of government instead of me. I don't, I don't want to have to pay to cover the cost of government. If we take it out through PFD cuts, that shoves it down to middle and lower income Alaska families, and I don't have to, I, I don't have to pay. And this is the um, kind of, we've talked about this before, and you made this great point, which, which I looked at very kind of closely when I was in Juneau, and I think you're totally right. You have the folks who represent the higher income areas, and their people basically don't want income taxes. 
or any tax, but really income tax. Then you have the folks who represent the lower income areas who aren't as concerned with the income tax, but they are concerned with spending. So they've made this weird, awkward bargain where up until now, no taxes, and we're generally going to spend kind of what we need to to make everybody happy. Yeah, you've got this unholy alliance where, I mean, let's just pick a person. Oh, let's say Natasha. Let's, let's pick Senator Von Great, 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 great pick, Brad. Great pick. That's a great, it's a good pick. That's a perfect example of. So, so what, what you've got is this unholy alliance where maybe this conversation didn't take place. Maybe it took place through winks and nods. But basically, it's I'll vote to continue spending. I won't push for spending cuts as long as you don't vote for income taxes that I would have to pay to cover. Let me go one step further. I'll even publicly oppose the governor and say how bad his cuts are and yeah, and make big statements about it and maybe even run for governor. Tell people I'm running for governor. So, so we'll continue spending as long as you don't tax me to pay for it. As long as we push the burden off on middle and lower income Alaska families, I'll I'll continue to support your spending. And from the other side, they're going. You know, what's it? What's more important? What's more important to our to our to our population to our middle and lower income Alaska families? PFDs or government spending? Then you sort of get the union overlay on top of that. Well, we got to look out for these jobs, um, and so they're they're making the bargain of, yeah, this is the worst possible thing that we can be doing from a from a individual fiscal standpoint to our constituents, but we're still getting government spending. We're still getting these government programs. Natasha's trying to not trying to cut those off at the knees. So you've got this weird alliance between those who value government spending and those who probably don't value government spending but just don't want to pay for don't it. Don't want to pay, don't want tax it. And, 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 and they sort of, you know, enter into, the, enter into this bargain. And that's, you know, that's where we've been since, since 2016. I mean, that's, that's sort of the genesis of how we got to that. We, every, everybody opposed every other revenue measure that Governor Walker, you know, proposed. Um, and so he was sort of left with, do I cut spending or do I cut the PFD to pay for it uh, and use that as the revenue source? And, you know, and, and his choice was to continue spending and to, and to cut the PFD. If we would have done what Walker wanted, I mean, I think his thing was put everything into the C. I mean, he wanted to put all the money into the permanent fund, get some tax revenue. Um, at the time, I think we probably would have had, what was it, 16? There was probably 7 or $8 billion in the CBR at that, maybe a little less. He wanted to put that in the, in the permanent fund and then basically get some revenues. I, I would venture to say we'd be a lot better off right now if we did that. Well, we'd be better off by what got what, what got drained out of the CBR. We would still be debating what kind of revenue measure we're going to use to close the deficit. We'd still have deficits. Well, I was saying that and the revenue measures. He had proposed all kinds of revenue measures. But if we had gotten some revenue measures and moved the remaining savings into the permanent fund from the CBR um, and the budget kept going down as it, as it did, I mean, you know, we'd be a lot better off right now than where we are with very little savings and no revenues and no plan. You know who's really benefited from that? The top 20%. Because they, all they've had to pay in these last five years is uh, uh, PFD cuts. I haven't ever told anybody the story, and I'm just like, fuck it, I'll just, I'll just tell the story. But when I was running for Senate last year, you know, I was independent, and I get my signatures, and um, I was going door to door. And this is a totally a random happenstance coincidence. I was in um, Southport area, and... Um, I went, I was on my walk list and I'm just going down, you know, the North Fleet Road and all the little side roads. And I walk, I walk up the street and I knew Dave Steeran lived there. So I knock on the door. He's on my list, super voter. Mm-hmm. And he's having a few people over. I think it was a Friday afternoon. It was after the primary, before Natasha had eked out a victory mm-hmm. against the crazy, you mm-hmm. know, QAnon guy. Mm-hmm. 
So it was everybody was like, oh shit, like landfill. This is, oh my God, you know? <laughs> and um, so I knock on the door and he's having some people over. He's kind of in that group with Ralph and Renate, you know, all these yeah. people. And Ralph happens to just walk up to the door at that point, Ralph Samuels. Totally coincidental with, with Portia Babcock, his wife. And he was, um, you know, pretty um, activated, you know, to, to chat with me. And, and I remember it very vividly. He, he was, you know, are you going to, are you going to vote to tax me to pay a dividend? I mean, that was his whole thing. And he was very, it was a very kind of intense conversation. And he, he was so intense about it. He asked me if I could do one thing, you know, what would you do? Like very, very like, what would you do? If you could do one thing, what would you do? And I didn't even know what to say because it was such a put me on the spot, kind of awkward. And, and I just said, public access to Campbell Lake. <laughs> just as like, what are you going to say, you know? And he was like, fucking Campbell Lake, that's what you're going to do. And, and then I said, actually, I'd... I'd, I'd um, find a way to resolve the permanent fund dividend issue. Um, and then Portia Babcock kind of like nodded like, huh? And then walked away. Yeah. But it was a very like, and Ralph's a higher earning person. Yep. And he represents people that, you know, that, that's it. They don't want to pay. They, 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 they don't want to pay. I've never told that story before to publicly, at least they, they don't want to pay their, their share. They want to push it off. I mean, we're, we're, if you count the PFD as I do, if you count PFD cuts as a tax, we're at something in the neighborhood of a 40% tax rate on the lowest 20%. By the, yeah. by the time you take into account average family size uh, and what that and what that income, the, the income boost would be from getting the PFD for that am, average family size and then cutting that back, that's a tax rate of around 40% on the, on, the, on the lowest 20%. The top 20% pays, or the top 1% pays 0.2% as a tax rate. That's the impact of PFD cuts on them. They don't, they don't want to face up to the cost of government. They don't want to pay a proportionate share of the cost of government. They're fine with government as long as it's shoved off on the, on middle and lower income Alaska families, but they don't want to pay, they don't want to pay a proportionate share of the cost. My, my view to go back to where we were a while ago, my view is if we had an income tax, they'd have to confront that. That's that's what Hammond had in mind. You'd have to confront that and you'd say, I don't want this much government. And to, and to be fair, I mean, I, I do, I do see, I do see both sides of it. I think they're, they're both very, they're, they, both sides have points. The frustration I have is what did Henry Clay say? You know, you made a good deal compromise when both everybody's unhappy. They haven't fi- fi- figured out the solution. They just kind of keep, I mean, they, and you're on your point, they're just doing the dividend, you know, cut, but, but that's not gonna, that's not going to be a long-term solution anyways, because we're out of money now, except the earnings reserve. So why can't, I mean, I think we're lacking probably an overall leader, which, which maybe once in a while you have a Jay Hammond come around or somebody comes around that can, can do these things, but we don't have anybody leading on, on, there's very few people that are trying to fix the problem, full, really fix the problem publicly. Yeah. And, but part of that is you got to have followers, right? And the top 20% just aren't going to follow. I mean, that's, it, it's what to, to fix this problem, you've got to get the middle-class Republicans the Republicans who are truly concerned about the overall Alaska economy and about middle and lower income Alaska families, you've got to get middle-class Republicans to align with the Democrats and, and, and essentially fix the problem by saying, we're all going to pay the same thing. We're not going to shove this burden to anybody anymore. As long as, as long as you allow, as long as you have this alliance, alliance between the top 20% and the Democrats, it's never going to get fixed because the top 20% is never going to let the PFD go. As a, as a revenue source, they're never going to let it be constitutionalized. They're never going to let it be fixed. 
uh, they're gonna you're gonna have this occasional you know like Natasha's SJR eight or whatever it mm-hmm. is you know this sort of I'm trying I'm trying to do it uh, but they're never gonna let it go as a revenue source because they want it as a cushion so that they don't have to pay taxes you've got we've got to shift it so that there's an alliance between the middle class Republicans and the Democrats in in truly fixing the problem what what are you what are your thoughts about this uh, ballot measure two and the next election with this single primary ranked choice. Do you think that's going to change things a lot or some? It's going to change things a lot. I mean, the thing that's going to, the thing that really is going to change is you're going to have four people coming into the, into the general election. I mean, you four you know, people who came out of a primary, not just, you know, the, the, the random, uh, 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 Alaska Independence Party guy is the is the, or woman is the third or fourth, and the Libertarian person is the third or fourth. You're going to have four candidates who came out, came through a primary, and got you know got the top four votes. And and you know my concern is money is going to is going to decide that. Then you're going to have all sorts of money coming in to try to to try to sway the vote. Well, the same same thing we saw in ballot measure one in the last election, all the oil money that came yeah, in the- to try to sway it. And I and I think I think the real I think the real problem with uh, with with this process is going to be the role that money's going to play. It's going to play even more of a role, I think, than it did the last time. Yeah, I mean, obviously, mechanically, it's going to change things, but you think the outcomes, and I, I've gone back and forth talking to folks, what are the outcomes going to be? I mean, are we going to have the same folks win? Are we going to have different? Some people have suggested maybe we have a whole bunch of potentially independent-type people win, and then there's even harder to organize because you have people that are so diverse and varied in their positions we saw the last two times the house couldn't organize for a month, which is a relatively new thing. In the you know past decades, it was usually happens after the election. Even the Senate didn't organize till the till the first day of the session. Yeah, no, I uh, uh, you know that, that's a potential outcome. I, I think I think it's where the money, <laughs> not to beat a dead horse, but I think it's where the money's going to go. Who's going to be able to raise the money to to get up on the airwaves and to and to and to sort of flood the market? I mean, you could have a Republican and a Democrat, and you could have an independent who has a lot of money who can either independently, you know, independently wealthy and, 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 and self-finance or who gets a lot of backing of a lot of out-of-staters and comes in with a heck of a lot of money and, and floods the airwaves. I, I was um, on the fence about the ring choice, and I still am a little bit, just because I think it's going to be very confusing for voters. Now, the ballot measure two folks, the better elections, are sticking around, and I just saw that the Division of Elections is going to be doing some mock right. elections. So, Hopefully the public goes in there knowing what, what's going on. My concern is you walk in there and say, what the fuck is this? Like four people and four circles. What do I do? I don't know what's going on. Um, but, but the other side of it, I look at my situation last time. You know, I, there's no more petition candidates getting signatures. You just go in the primary. Right. Um, if that was the case in my race, it would have been me, Natasha, Duplantis, and the Democrat. And I've thought a lot about that, but I think I probably would have maybe had a sh- real shot there. Because I think I'd, this is my life. I have, I'm a lot of people's second choice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that, but that actually, that actually helps a lot in the, in that, in that structure. It does. What, what, you, you know, in the, in the, in the one place where you can sort of see rank choice at a, at a congressional level or, or at a representative level play out, um, you've, I've seen it in Maine. Uh, and you get a more, you've got a Democrat. Uh, in, a, in a Republican district, in a district that voted for Trump, you've got a Democrat who won uh, because of the everybody's, you know, the second choices of, of the candidates who didn't win. He finished second in the, in, the, in the first run, and then when you counted it, but the first person didn't get to 50%. So, you, so they recycle, yeah. Yeah, you recycled, and, uh, and he ended up winning. And he's a lot more moderate than either the Republican was or, 
or you know some of the other uh, people who were uh, in the uh, in the election. So you you tend to get people who are more uh, that would would give you an indication you're, you're tend to people get more toward the center. But I think it's going to be truly. I think it's going to be money. I think money's going to be, be well because in, in, in some districts it's very likely you're going to have three or four Republicans or three or four Democrats right. um, on the thing. And then it's like, well, which Democrat or which Republican do you, right. do you kind of go, go with right. uh, on the government? We've, I talked about this with uh, Joe Geldof. You probably know him, right? Mm-hmm. He's a character. Sure. We did kind of a, and maybe I can do this with you in a scenario for governor of a, and this is just a hypothetical, Mike Dunleavy, Laura Reinbold, Bill Walker, Bill Wilikowski, right? Who gets recycled for who, who gets fourth? And that's like the question I've gone back and forth on. I don't know. Well, add on, I'll say this one more time, then I'll stop, but add on a bunch of money. Add, add on the huge money, right? Hu- huge money coming in for one of those candidates. Uh, like, in, or, or let's go back to your Senate race, the, the four that you were outlining for your Senate race. Natasha pours in a million dollars in a Senate race. How do you match that? How do you deal with that? That's that's the issue that I'm that I'm. Well, the the, about. the the way I mean the money is going to play a huge factor, but but um, in the general, I got out. Rosalind Casey, who didn't do anything, she didn't campaign at all. She got forty percent. So so there's 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 people who are just not going to vote for the Republican. Um, obviously, it's a Republican district, but when you start doing this ranked thing, yep, yep. it's like how many independents and Democrats and, and who who do they? And she almost lost the primary, Natasha, and this guy didn't spend any money. Yep. She didn't spend a lot of money either, but she was the incumbent. So, you know, I've gone like I've thought about all these scenarios and all these, and this like, if it was if it was Walker, Wilikowski, Dunleavy, and Reinbold, Dunleavy's going to have money. Wilikowski would have support and money. Walker would surely have some money, um, and there'd be independent groups too do, doing doing this, like we we already see with Citizens United. We've seen the last several years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's like who? I mean, I, th- I think probably Reinbold would go first, and then her votes probably go to Dunleavy. Her second, the second votes. Most people are going to vote for her first. Are probably going to vote for him second. Yeah, but look at look at the mayor's race. I mean, you sort of had that in the primary. We had Bill Evans. We had, you know, Mike Robbins. We had uh, uh, name escapes me. Who won? Oh, uh, Dave Bronson. Yeah, Dave Bronson. And you had Forrest Dunbar, and you <laughs> and you had others. And it was it was sort of the two extremes are the ones that won. That was a, and that was essentially a top two runoff. Right now, I've talked about this too. What what if the what if the 15 candidates on the ballot, there were six running actual races, but there was 15. What if that was a ranked? What if top four? Yeah. What if it was Bill Evans, or I guess who would it be? It would be Bill, Dave Bronson, Forrest Dunbar, Bill Evans, and Bill Falsey. They would have gone to the top four if it was a top four type thing. Is that right? Yeah. Bronson got the most, Dunbar, then Falsey, then Evans. Yeah. So they'd go, and then that'd be very fascinating. Who would, who would come out of that one? Um, it, you know, it could be a Falsey or an Evans, potentially. Yeah. Because there, there are a lot of people's second choices. Yeah, yeah, could have been, could have been. I mean, that's a good point. That's a good point. So I, I, the answer is we don't know. <laughs> the answer is we'll be a lot better talking about this in 2024 well, than we are in 2020. I even asked my friend Matt Larkin, who's a pollster, about this. And he, he's, he said this is probably going to be very difficult to poll because you're asking people to you know, answer a lot more questions than just who do you like, this person or that person or whatever. But I think it's going to be uh, great for people like me, you know, a lot of... <laughs> A lot of characters running around. <laughs> and, and hopefully a lot of ads on the landmine. That's and, right. I mean, if you're listening, folks, we, we love to sell ads, and we're an off year. So hopefully next year goes. What was it? Amanda Coyne had some record year in. in 14. 14 with, uh, with, with ads on, the, on her blog. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've heard different numbers thrown around, but I think she did very well. I mean, yeah. that was a Sullivan year. That was when the 
That was the first election, I think, post Citizens United. Yeah, that was that and was Miller in the primary and Sullivan and and Be- uh, Begich was the incumbent. Wasn't Meade in, in that one too? I Meade think was there was a whole. One, yeah. yeah, it was. But then it was Sullivan and, and Begich, and the right. money just. I think it was huge amounts of money. I remember. Yeah. I remember. I had a stack. Where I saved them, and I was so pissed off. I think I had about a hundred mailers that I had collected over over the course of the campaign, the primary and the general. And I, th- I think that's when Channel 2 created a, a whole new program because they just they didn't have enough places that the ads would go. So they created some sort oh, of – Oh, they had that political pipeline right, show that they exactly. got rid of. That was a good show. Well, Austin Baird did that. It was a, it was a great show, but it, it was – the genesis of it was they needed a place to, you know, to, to have for more ads to be flo- floated in. They weren't getting you – know, there was a lot more money out there than they were getting, so they just needed to create another space that people would buy ads on. That's a good so. problem to have, huh? <laughs> I guess. And then you got the KTVA did very well that year. And anyway, then, so the landmine may be a good investment in uh, in right. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to invest, Brad, let me know, buddy. We'll, <laughs> we'll talk about that off. <laughs> well, Brad, thanks for coming on. I, I love talking to you, and uh, you do so much work with uh, uh, Alaskans for sustainable budgets. And then you have some other kind of pages too. You you run, but the the big one is the the, the one I spend the most time is Alaskans for sustainable budgets, or as the stalker once put it, Alaskan <laughs> for sustainable budgets. Yeah, she's, I, I think she, <laughs> That's there's there's some uh, funniness and there's some sadness to that you know <laughs> comment. No, it's it's uh, I mean because a lot of people don't seem to want to have that. They want and, and you're putting all this work into it, and they want to go to their respective corners. That's fine. I'm 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 perfectly fine with that. If it, if it is the Alaskan for sustainable budget, I'm perfectly fine with that. Are you still doing um, any legal stuff, or are you kind of no no? I, I got to the point in my life that I didn't have to do that anymore. I was financially where I didn't have to do that, so I've. I, I spend all my time now on, uh, well, most of the time on Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets uh, and then Celtic music, <laughs> going to Celtic music festivals and then going to basketball games. That's actually the one thing I wanted to ask you before we finish. You you are uh, kind of a prolific traveler. You're going to Scotland, uh, Europe. You're going to Lower 48. You're do, always doing something. Pre-co- Basketball. Pre-COVID. I was going to ask you with the COVID, I mean, that really, you were always doing something, going somewhere. How difficult was it for you to really not travel for a year when you're really used to doing all this? You know, what happened was the music industry moved online. All, all, of, the, all of the artists that I really enjoyed, in one way or another, found a way to get themselves online and do online uh, uh, virtual uh, performances. Some did them by Zoom, some did them on YouTube. Uh, but there was a huge amount of music. Probably I was able to go to more music online than I ever was by being able to go to festivals. Now, what I lost was seeing friends and being able to visit places, Orkney Islands, Scotland, Ireland, that I hadn't visited before and, and discover new things. But in terms of the music, uh-huh. there, there was as much music, well, as I say, there, there may have been more music available online than there, than there had been, than I'd been able to see before. Well, for me, the most, that kind of stuff, the, the best part for me is the people and the social social element right. which you lose. Right. Also, you're big into the basketball, so that that didn't really work R- out, did it? Right. Uh, we we ended the the basketball season on a very you know we just ended it abruptly in uh, in 2020, but we had a basketball season this past year, and again it was online. I mean, yes, it, I wasn't able to the, the socialization. I wasn't able to sit there and watch it with friends, but you know we would all get on text or we would all uh-huh. get on Facebook Live and we'd talk to each excuse me talk to each other. Uh, as it was going on, same thing with the, with the uh, festivals, with the music. So, it was it was a lesser experience, but it wasn't the absence of an experience. I wasn't sitting home twiddling my thumbs. Now I saw you just traveled somewhere. You're starting to travel again, right? 
Didn't you go somewhere recently? Yeah, but that that's more my mother fell, and so I've been uh, going to Illinois to uh, to help out around the house. So when's the next Celtic festival? Uh, Cape Breton, uh, Cape Breton's had a third wave, so they're still closed down. But there's hope that they're going to be open uh, in September, uh, and there's a festival lined up in September if they are open. So that would be that would sort of be my target to to go to that festival in September. That's probably. Might not be the best word for that, but I think when a lot of these things start up, there's going to be a lot of ragers, <laughs> big ones, you know, after a year or more than a year of... A, a Cape Breton rager would be different. I don't think rager is a term for Cape Breton, but in general, I mean, I just saw the NASCAR, was it NASCAR? They had the big 135,000 oh, yeah. person. Well, no, it was the Indianapolis 500. Oh, yeah, right. So it was the biggest event, since, right. you know, gathering right. since uh, right. since COVID right. started, which right. is... Uh, and then you got other... But other places in the world I'm watching are still have parts of Europe and, and South America. I mean, there's still places that aren't doing great. Right. And um, I mean, even Australia has parts of Australia are still on lockdown. Well, and as I say, Cape Breton's gone through, I mean, Cape, Cape Breton just came out like yesterday, just came out of a, of a lockdown. Did you have the COVID ever or no? Did you get the COVID? No. Did you have the vaccine? Yes. I got the Moderna. What would you? Pfizer. Man, I was real bad after my second one. I got sick, like didn't fever, af- chills, horrible for a day. Didn't affect me at all. Uh, I, I mean, I had a, little sting in my arm that was that was about it but uh, didn't affect me at all um and and i didn't i mean i i just shut down i just stayed indoors and st- stayed to myself uh i know i tried to meet up with you a couple times and, and you said uh, nope <laughs> well my deal I mean, I mean not to not to get too personal about this but my deal with my mother was I'm, I'm i'm the only only surviving son so we're the only surviving child so my deal with my mother was i'll stay safe you stay safe my mother's in her 80s, so I'll stay safe. You stay safe. First place I'll travel after we get out of this. I won't expose myself to anything. First place I'll travel after we get out of this is to come see you. That was sort of her incentive to do the same from her side. So that was, that's I mean. A good, that's a good deal, yeah. That was that was a big part of, of why I just sort of, you know, stayed to myself. Well, things are, I'd say, generally getting back to normal here. So summer's here, and we're going to have a hopefully a good one. And then maybe you'll go to Cape Breton in the yep. September. Yep, hope maybe get up to Denali uh, this summer and then. It's actually one of the good things about one of the positive externalities of the, of the COVID is um, a lot of in-state travel has been opened up and things that typically Alaskans might not do or um, the road, they've opened the road a little more up there yeah. um, and, you know, they're giving some great prices. So I think a lot of people have been fortunate enough to do some things or see some things. The other one is the, it's so crazy last year, um, home improvement. I mean, you couldn't find all kinds of tools or electronics or, you know, so that was another a lot of people were fixing the houses. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot for coming in, Brad. I, I first podcast with you, but you you uh, you're you're always on the radio and you're always talking. So I have a I have a weekly podcast. You actually. do, yeah, I, right. I, I cut that out of the Michael Dukes show I do every week. So yeah, it, so people, if they want to if they want to hear more, uh, it's uh, go to the weekly podcast I do uh, with Michael Dukes. And then you can go to Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets, the Facebook page, a lot of activity and Twitter, and then the website. So right, folks exactly. want to go learn about the budget. Yeah, exactly. Great, Brad. Well, Brad Keithley, thanks for coming in. Really enjoyed doing the podcast with you. Jeff, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, folks, if uh, you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, uh, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.